From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Today, Debbie Maycumber, who will be a guest of the Thurber House Evenings with Authors on August 21st, describes how she taught herself how to write, with the result, 160 million books in print. And then Steve Nichols, author of Social Media in Business, describes the educational uses of social media to Emily Tara, the John Aller special reporter for The Lantern. Stay tuned. Debbie Maycumber, tell me about your new book, The Inn at Rose Harbor. This is a, something of a little bit of a departure for you from writing about Cedar Cove, uh, the successful series of books you've been writing. Well, actually, uh, The Inn at Rose Harbor takes place inside of Cedar Cove. And uh, the reason I, I decided to switch um, series is because I had, wrote, had written 15 books that took place inside of Cedar Cove with all the characters. And that was the problem, all the characters. After 15 books, there were so many characters. The first 12 pages of the novel were updating everybody and who was who. <laughs> and so I decided I needed to do a new series, and I wanted to create something where the characters would come and go. So there were a certain set that I would keep, but then as soon as I said that, the readers were just so upset. We can't leave Cedar Cove. We love Cedar Cove. And I thought, well, I had to set it inside of town anyway. And really what the readers wanted was just an update on the characters. So this inn at Rose Harbor takes place inside of Cedar Cove. And um, it's, you know, about a, a widow, a young war widow. Her husband died in Afghanistan, and she's making a new life for herself. Okay. And what... Uh, where did you come up with the idea to make it a war widow? I think that that probably has great significance for you as an author. Well, it, it just, uh, my uh, my dad uh, was in World War II. In fact, he was a POW in World War II. And my son was in the Army, uh, airborne. And so, it's you know, it, it just kind of hit home, especially with so much that's happening in Afghanistan and in the Middle East. And, and I, I felt there were a lot of people who know someone who's lost a husband or they've lost a loved one in war, and it would resonate with the readers. Okay. Now, you've also had a couple of Hallmark Channel movies, and you've got one coming out in 2013 with Andy McDowell. And tell me about working, being an author, and seeing your work switch genres, where you go from a novel to something that's on television. How involved were you with that? Well, I've become more involved with each one of the movies. I feel very fortunate to work with an incredible production company, the Dan Wigatow Production Company. And uh, the first movie, I, I just went to the set and I met everyone. And the second movie, uh, we talked about the plot because the first movie was so successful, they wanted me to write another Mrs. Miracle book. So I actually wrote the book uh, to be made into a movie. And then the uh, third one was just one of my favorite books. And so they, they took my word for it and they made it into a movie. And I got to read the script and approve the script. Now, with the fourth one, the Cedar Cope one, um, I've actually been very involved with it. Not so much in the writing, but talking to them about cast members and um, visiting the set in uh, reading the script and approving it. And so it's been an, uh, uh, every 
every movie I get a little more involved. Okay. Now, having script approval like that, can you tell us about some of the things that you uh, took away from that, some of the ways that it may have informed your own writing or it you may have been able to say to the person that was doing the script writing, hey, I really like this, um, I'd like you to do something different here, things like that? Well, the only things I have changed are technical things. I read the script, and uh, the uh, script writer had gotten a couple of names wrong. And so I just made sure, because the readers, the minute you get a wrong name, they know it. And so I helped correct that. And, you know, I have to be very bendable here, because uh, they are taking 400 pages, or 100,000 words, and turning it into... Uh, a 90-page script, so you cannot put everything in the script, and and I have to let go of a lot of the book. What, what was that like, learning to let go? How how did you work that? Is that a lot of yoga? Is that a lot of uh, breathing <laughs> exercises? What did you have to do? I, you know, having gone through this a number of times, it, it's easier every time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so tell me about... Um, your work habits with 150 books already in print. What do you do when you get up in the morning? How do you face that uh, that blank computer screen or typewriter or however it is that you prefer to write? Well, I'm a very disciplined uh, writer, and I'm a morning person. I was born with that early morning happy gene. And my, in fact, when we were first married, my husband said to me, do you have to shine so bright in the morning? <laughs> I um, I get up about, and I'm the granddaughter of farmers, so I'm up about 4 a.m. every morning. And I spend the first hour and a half just actually getting ready for my day. I, I read my Bible, I write in my journals, and then I go and I swim half a mile. And after I'm done with that, then I have an office away from my home. And I come to the office and I read all the reader mail, the guest book entries, the letters, and everything. I have a staff of five who help me keep current with everything. And uh, then I come up and do emails and write a blog. And then I start in on my chapter. And often there are um, interruptions through the day. And, and I'm accustomed to those because I started writing with four small children underfoot. And so the interruptions don't bother me. And as long as I just have some, you know, the story goes through my mind. And I, I, I've never had, well, I can't say I've never had writer's block. Um, I'm basically a storyteller talk. I, I, that's really the gift God gave me. I had to learn to be a writer. So the stories have always come easy for me. Okay. Now you're making a difference between storyteller and writer. Tell me a little bit about that. What is there that you felt you had to become a writer, but you were a natural-born storyteller? Well, I have a theory about writers. I think there are three different kinds. The, the first kind of writer is the, the person who is a writer, a natural-born writer. And, and you know who they are because you, you, you found them in school. They could just, you know, uh, go get, answer those essay questions and just, you know, breathe their way through them without a problem. They didn't say anything. But it looked good. And oftentimes, <laughs> those, uh, those natural-born writers are so caught up in the beauty of their words, and they do write beautifully, that they don't know how to tell a story. So once their storytelling ability is par with their writing ability, they sell. I'm just the opposite. 
I had to learn to be a writer. When I started, I had to basic English. I had to learn basic English. Um, I'm dyslexic, so I'm a creative speller, too. Mm-hmm. So once my writing skills were equal to my storytelling skills, that's when I saw my first novel. Then there's the third kind, and I, I joke around and I say that, that they don't suffer enough. Because they usually stop quickly because they possess both talents, the writing and the storytelling. But almost always, these people are one-book wonders because they don't have that foundation. They don't know what they did right. They just know that their books are successful, they sold easily, and they have to struggle because there's so much pressure put upon them to reproduce the same kind of success. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, how long did it take you to uh, to learn the craft? And what were some of the things that you tell people that you learned uh, about the craft of writing when you started? Well, I can remember the first day I sat down to be officially a writer with the rented typewriter on our kitchen table, and I rolled a piece of paper into the the typewriter, and then I just froze because I I didn't know where to start a story. I didn't know how to start a story or write a book. I didn't know another writer in the whole world. I married as a teenager. We had these four babies. So um, I took four books that I had read and loved the story. Whatever was inside those books that made me go back again and again, where I, I could read them and never tire of the story. I wanted that in my own books. So I dissected them. I went through them scene by scene, chapter by chapter. And in the process, I learned about plotting and pacing. I learned structure, how to introduce backstory uh, and characters, how to open a chapter and a chapter. And once I had done that, then I was ready to start my own book. So it was a learning process of structure, of how to form a story, and a basic English. I just had to learn basic English. Well, now, I'm curious when you say basic English, uh, we're you using too much slang? What was what was it that was basic English that you had to learn? When I say that, I mean uh, punctuation okay. and, you know, other things like that. Okay, now you have people to put the periods and commas, semicolons in, so you can just forget <laughs> all the stuff that you learned before. Is that what you're getting at? No, no. <laughs> Once you learn it, it doesn't go away. So story comes first for you is that it or do you have an idea of a character and you say i really like this character of um a war widow and i'm going to work with that or did this the the outline of the story come first to you with your discussion of how you dissected uh, the six novels that you found successful it seems like you must be a very sort of plot oriented person who does a story arc and follows that is that right? Yes, yeah, definitely. I definitely start with the story, and then I develop the characters to go along with it. Okay. And what will you be doing at the Thurber House on August 21st? Can you give us a sneak uh, preview of that? Well, they say they want me to read something, and I'll be happy to read something, but I'm a very slow reader, <laughs> and because I am dyslexic, but... Uh, and I'll also be talking. I, I really enjoy meeting my readers, and, uh, and, I, and I love to interact with them. And I have a, a list of funny letters that I have gotten and, and things that have happened to me as, a, as an author that I enjoy sharing with them. That It's just a, it, it's a humorous kind of talk. So it's 
Um, just kind of a fun thing, and I and I love answering questions from the audience too. So um, I'll, I'll be doing all of it. Okay, and you know, and I'm downright friendly. You, just downright. <laughs> well, friendly. it sounds like it, and you have been today. I I really appreciate that. Um, my one final question for you is: What's on your bedstand right now? What are you reading? that uh, you would recommend or uh, or perhaps maybe not even recommend, but what are you reading right now? Uh, I'm reading uh, The Innocent by uh, David Baldacci, who I just think is one fine storyteller. And I just finished uh, a book by Julia Quinn, a Regency book, and I can't even remember the title of it, but it's really good. Okay. All right. Well, uh, Debbie Maycomber, thank you very much for being with us today on Writer's Talk, and we look forward to your coming to Columbus on August 21st with the Thurber House series. Oh, thank you so much, Doug. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. That was Debbie Maycumber, who will be at the Thurber House on August 21st. You can learn more about her at our website, www.writerstalk.org. And now, Emily Terra, the John Ollers special reporter for The Lantern, talks to Steve Nichols, author of Social Media in Business. Hi, Steve Nichols. This is Emily Tara with Ohio State University's The Lantern on Writer's Talk. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How about yourself? I'm pretty good. Today we're going to talk a little bit about your book, Social Media in Business, and how you feel about social media use in the classroom. Your book has been rather successful. Would you tell me about it? Yeah, my book was, was effectively written for... Um, business people mainly um, that wanted to understand more about social media from a business point of view. A lot of social media is written from a consumer point of view or from sort of games and all that kind of stuff. And I think a lot of business people don't really understand what social media is about. So my book was written really in two stages. The first one is to understand the landscape of social media um, and then really to outline three other things. One is what are the benefits for a business person or somebody involved in a project? What are the risks? And and what are some of the most common applications? You know, everybody's heard of uh, Facebook and Twitter and that kind of stuff. But there are a whole range of other ones which people perhaps haven't heard of. And typically the way that people talk about social media, um, they don't tend to talk about the benefits. They tend to talk about, about friends and risks and all the kind of, all the kind of bad things. But, but really the reason to do it is for all the good things. Um, and also to acknowledge that there are some risks which need to be managed. So, so what are some of those risks that you think need to be managed? In my book, um, in Chapter 4, I go through the whole, you know, go through that in quite a lot of detail. The sort of risks that we're talking about are things like, you know, reputation management. It's very, very easy for somebody within your organization to say something on Twitter or Facebook. Um, and not really, because I think a lot of people think it's a kind of informal because of the way the style of it is informal. So they kind of think of it as um, an informal channel. But actually, it's a formal channel if it's used for business. So, for instance, if you're using the company Facebook page or even your personal one, what you say could be potentially seen by millions of people. Um, you know, so uh, something which might seem quite innocent can actually turn out to be quite, uh, you know, quite. Um, well, it <laughs> turns out to be something that could get you fired. Right. So, I mean, for instance, in the Olympics going on in the UK at the moment, and uh, one of the competitors from Greece. Uh, she inadvertently tweeted something that somebody had sent her, perhaps didn't even read it. Maybe it wasn't even her. Maybe it was somebody from her PR company was, that was doing it on her behalf and retweeted something, and she's been branded a racist and chucked out of the games. So there's an example of something which you know, may be quite a small thing, but actually has been blown up into something quite large. 
And you've also talked about how it can be rather positive. What made you decide to go into writing a whole book about social media to begin with? Because you went to business school also, correct? Yes, I went to business school. In fact, I've been to business school twice. Um, once back in the 90s and uh, again in the mid-2000s. Uh, so what made you interested in the social media aspect of business? Well, I've been involved in technology since the mid-90s. And so I've been around this stuff for quite a long time. And my interest is really the people aspect. Um, technology actually is, is really a people issue. Uh, it's not really a technology issue. And the people side of technology moves a lot slower than the technology side. So a lot of these technologies have actually been around for quite a long time. But, um, but the people side of it are the, the, the ones that take a little bit longer time to actually get going. So to answer your question, um, a lot of my clients, pardon me, a lot of my clients, uh, you know, executives tend to be sort of 40 plus. Um, and they are people typically, if they're not in the technology industry, haven't really grown up with, they haven't really grown up with this stuff. So it's kind of, it's kind of gone on, uh, gone on outside of their frame of reference. So typically younger people, uh, you know, they're, they're used to using a, a university or a college um, you know, it's a way that they connect with their friends, you know, on Facebook, Twitter, that kind of stuff. But I think um, in general, people sort of 40 plus, you know, typically executives, it's not something they really do as a, as a matter of course. So, so they, they're not really familiar with this stuff. And um, so that's why I wrote it, because a lot of my clients were kept asking me questions about it. You know, <laughs> you know they come up to me and say, Steve, what is this stuff? You know, people, people keep saying about we should be doing this and I just don't get it. You know, I don't understand why I should be doing Facebook or Twitter or whatever it is. Um, so that's that's really why I wrote the book, and one of the things that I did, uh, I, I said I wrote my book in two halves. The first half was really about, if you like, it was like a guide to the to the industry, um, and the second half was really a step by step. How do you bring it into the? If you're going to do social media, how do you step by step manage it? You know, how do you understand the, as, as I mentioned the risks? I, I mentioned one of the risks, but you know there are a number of other risks like security and uh, you know a lot of people sort of think it's wasting company time. Uh, that uh, if you have people sort of they're going to be playing games all day if they if they get on this stuff, um, but actually um, that's what people thought when the internet first came in. Uh, I was I was with a telecom company in the early nineties when the when the internet first arrived, and pretty much the attitude that companies have right now and also schools are having right now it isn't very much different to when the internet first came out. You know, it's uh, very much like oh my god, this is a really bad thing. It's going to you know people are going to waste loads of time and all that kind of stuff. And of course there is some of that. I wanted to bring it back a little bit to when you were talking about um, students using social media in universities and how you were speaking about how before the internet was really big and now we see internet all of the time used in classrooms. And I was just wondering how you felt that social media should be implemented like the internet has been implemented into classrooms. Well, the first thing I would say is that the benefits far outweigh the risks. I mean, that, that, that's my, uh, you know, my, my feeling on the, on the thing is that, that, that um, if we ask really what social media is, social media isn't just Facebook and Twitter. It's a whole range of things. What, what really social media is, uh, from my perspective, is it's a class of software. And it's a class of software which has a, a, a sort of a, a, a set of characteristics which is quite similar, which effectively enables people to exchange information documents and to connect with people very simply and easily so if you look at a, a, a platform such as facebook um what it does it enables people to connect together very very simply and you can exchange pictures uh word documents you know uh, presentations whatever it is 
And, and people tend to like, you know, pictures and videos and all that kind of stuff because it's simple and easy. And uh, nowadays people have got mobile phones and it's very, very easy to exchange information. So if you look at a platform like Facebook, for instance, one of the things that you'll notice about that, other than, say, a normal website that before, say, in, in the early 90s, is that it doesn't have any content. The content is provided by the users. Uh, LinkedIn would be another example of that. So if you look at LinkedIn, it, it provides a mechanism or a, a way for people to connect simply and easily. And also they, they've opened up those platforms to allow, allow other developers, other applications to ride on those platforms. So if you look at something like Facebook, now there's hundreds of, I mean, probably thousands of applications that can run on the Facebook platform without actually ever you going to Facebook. Do you think that Facebook would be the most beneficial platform to be using in a classroom, or do you feel that there's others that would be more beneficial? Well, I think it depends what you're doing. I mean, there, there are quite a few that you could use that would be beneficial, and I think that's where teachers and other people come in. I mean, for instance, just using a simple blog is a, is a very, very useful a very useful tool. Um, so, you know, a, a blog is like a, like building your own website, but it's so simple now using, you know, the, the sort of uh, platforms that, uh, such as WordPress. You can put a free uh, blog up, and it's very, very simple. And, of course, on that you can then put your social media um, connections and all the other things. So within the classroom, there are a lot of things that you can do uh, as a teacher and as a student, um, not just connecting with your friends, but also you can be very, very creative with a lot of these uh, with these platforms. Yeah, I mean, the, the other thing I would say is that when we come to the benefits, that um, social media is used now, in, in especially in the consumer area. I mean, there's probably nobody in the consumer area that isn't using social media for some, at some degree or other. And now as we go into the business area, as I mentioned, the social media really is an upgrade to the internet. So it's, it's not... It's not something like it's not just Facebook and Twitter. It's actually every piece of software that's out there is now adding a social dimension to the software. So if you're a software developer or a soft, you know, if you've got some software, um, things like you know, for instance, if you look at something like Salesforce.com, that was uh, is, is what they call a customer relationship management piece of software. Now they've opened up that, that up to all sorts of applications, and it's completely changed the nature of their software. And um, you know, that was a business piece of software. Now. Every piece of software that's out there, everybody who's got some kind of platform, they are adding a social dimension to it. So what I would say is this, is that don't think of software, social media as just Facebook and Twitter. Those are popular ones which you know, celebrities tend to use. But um, there are loads of different ones. And in my book, I go into, you know, I break them into, into the different areas because there are quite a lot of different areas that you can actually use this stuff for. Um, and I give a lot of examples of that. But I suppose my, my point for uh, from a teaching point of view, I'm, I'm not saying that there aren't dangers that, um, you know, for instance, if you're in a school or there aren't there aren't some uh, that some um, risks that need to be managed. I mean, there are you know inappropriate contacts sometimes between students and uh, teachers, um, lecturers, um, and what have you, and these have to be acknowledged as real risks and they have to be managed. And typically the way that you would manage that is through a social media policy and that whether it's be in a business or a school, because it would be exactly the same, that you need a policy which outlines how you are able to behave as a student, as a teacher, and, uh, you know, or if you're in a company as a, as a worker and, or an employee and the, the company, because there are a lot of gray areas in this stuff. You know, for instance, if you're using your own uh, equipment, such as a, a phone or an iPad, well, is that, that's not the company. But you're, you may be saying something which may be construed as part of the company. So your social media policy has to cover that. 
We've been talking about using it in at the university level. Do you believe that that is when it should start to be implemented, or do you think it should come in at a younger age? Me personally, I think it should come in at a younger age. Um, some people don't agree with that, and I respect their point of view. Um, my re- my reasoning is this: is that students and younger you know, younger people are using it, uh, whether schools use it or not, uh, because it's 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 out there. I mean, you know, there are Facebook, there is Twitter, you know, people are using their Xbox, their PlayStation, you know, they're using games um, and all sorts of things that are out there. Whether you're using a dating site or whatever it is, these things are out there. And I think that the school, if the, if the school isn't the place where you're going to learn how to use these safely, then where are you going to learn to do that? So I think, you know, how to do that appropriately, how to do that well, um, to understand that there are people out there that pretend to be something they're not. Um, these are, are things that you have to learn somewhere. And I think that w- why not in a school? I mean, because a school is a safe environment and you can set up a whole set of uh, uh, things which actually make that um, easy to do. Do you think that making more of an emphasis on digital learning would have any sort of or how do you think it would play into the school's budget and funding? Well, I'm sure when the internet first came out, people were saying, you know, where are we going to get the money from? And let's carry on with, you know, calculators and uh, slide rules, you know. But you're up against global competition, competition from China, India, and also other parts of the world. And these people are not standing still. So if America wants to be at the forefront of technology, then students have to have to understand these technologies and need to understand them, not from a point of view of, you know, conceptually what they are. They need to really understand them so that they can really, when they come into the workplace, that they can probably teach some of the business people how to use them because a lot of people don't really know how to use these very well. So coming from a business background and talking about current students, how can university students use social media to their benefit to either get a job out of college or to make them more competitive in the job market? Well, there's a number of things there. I mean, you know, as I said, there's a the whole range of different things. But if we just talk about one, um, one or two, I mean, for instance, LinkedIn is what we would call the sort of grown-up uh, sort of business type area. So a lot of uh, business people are on LinkedIn. So, I mean, if you look at the top 500 companies, the CEOs of every one of those companies will be on, on LinkedIn. And so if you're looking for a job, then, of course, that, that is a recruiter's um, you know, that's where recruiters go, and that's where you can go to find jobs. So having a good profile on something like LinkedIn, if you're a student, would be a very, very good thing to do. Again, also having a good profile on something like uh, Facebook would also be a good thing. What you've got to be very careful of is that whatever you do on Facebook throughout your college career or your student career, uh, that is open to everybody to see. So so I know it's difficult. I was a student once, and it's probably hard to believe, but um, I'm, now, I'm now nearly 50, so... Um, but in my day, we didn't have, uh, you know, electronic cameras. We didn't have electronic, all of our life captured electronically. Whereas nowadays students, everything they do is captured by somebody and employers will look at that. I mean, because nowadays you just Google somebody's name and there are, there are specific applications for that. For instance, um, if you look at people.com, you can type in somebody's name and it'll bring up everything about that person. So if you're a student, I think that you need to make sure that you polish up your Facebook profiles to make sure that you haven't got anything too inappropriate on there because uh, you can guarantee that employers will be looking at that. Um, I, my, for instance, my nephew, is, uh, he's 20, uh, 24 now, and 
and uh, we've discussed this. And uh, one of the things he says, he thinks that because I said to him, well, when you're my age, people are going to they're going to Google and they're going to look for what you were like when you were 21 or when you were 18, because the, the pictures will be there and the videos will be there to prove it. And he said that, um, and it's something I probably agree with. He said, well, attitudes have changed by then. Um, but at the moment, the attitudes are pretty much set by sort of, let's just say, another generation. And those, that generation typically doesn't understand Facebook. They don't really understand a lot of these uh, tools. So perhaps they're not as um, understanding about, you know, seeing pictures uh, which they might consider inappropriate, just like your parents might see it as inappropriate. Have you seen people lose out on job opportunities or employment opportunities due to their social media, the way they broadcast themselves online? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that, uh, I mean there's, if you look in the press and just Google the press, you'll see lots of cases where people have been fired uh, and when people haven't been hired. Now, the thing is, nobody's going to tell you that you were not hired because of some of the pictures that people saw about you um, because that is um, maybe breaking some employment law. Um, but you can guarantee that if it can be done, people are going to do it. So people are going to look at what, you, what you're doing. On, on, on online now I don't pass a judgment on that in the sense that you know that's that's what people will do now law for instance the law says that you, you're not supposed to discriminate based on race sex age and all those other things however how do you check that somebody hasn't uh, done that okay great well thank you so much Steve and I really think that students can have a lot to learn based on on social media and everything that you've said so far oh, you're welcome thank you very much You've been listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. You can learn more about my guests today, Debbie Maycumber and Steve Nichols, along with my special guest host, Emily Tara, at www.writerstalk.org. Join me next time for David Rosenwasser and Jill Stephen, authors of the textbook Writing Analytically, which is used in hundreds of OSU classrooms for thousands of students. Until next time, this is Doug Dangler at The Ohio State University. Keep writing. Keep writing.